Well, good morning and welcome wherever you are. Uh, nice to have you with us today. We gather here every Sunday to gain perspective and hope and confidence and to do so together. I want to welcome the ward regulars who are gathered uh, presumably in your living room somewhere, not too far from where I stand. Also want to welcome all the guests and visitors wherever you are. Uh, last Sunday, we had people join us from 36 states and nine countries. All geographic barriers have been removed and wherever you are today, we're really glad that you are here. Uh, we're gonna continue in looking at the words of the wisest man who ever lived, Jesus, as recorded in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And today we get to that section of this famous sermon where Jesus said, do not judge. And I wanna warn you, it's gonna get a little personal. You know, when times of crisis come, we see the best and the worst of humanity. And we have certainly seen in recent days a rise in generosity and graciousness and uh, unity uh, national and globally in ways that have really been beautiful. We are coming together like never before. But we've also been cooped up in our homes for a long time now, and we're getting a little cranky and irritable, and we're watching more television than ever before, and we are making judgments on politicians and protesters and anybody who approaches this crisis differently than us. Today is all about the plank and the speck. And reading the words of Jesus for us this morning, our brothers Carter and Caden, uh, this is the word of God for us today. Take it away, guys. Matthew 7, 1 through 4. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold the log that is in your own eye? Thank you, gentlemen. Jesus lived in a time and place where people were very uh, judgmental. It was filled with laws and rules. There was, of course, the one big law, love God with everything you've got with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the big law. And then there were the 10 laws and other laws that supported the big law. And then for Jewish people, they also had the Mishnah, which was a 24 chapter commentary on the 10 that supported the one. And then there was the Talmud, which was the 64 chapter commentary on the 24 that supported the 10 that supported the one. So they had lots of rules. Uh, they, they, they may have gotten into the woods. They may have been splitting hairs. Uh, they may have lost the forest for the trees. I, I could throw a lot of metaphors at this, but it led to a lot of judgment. Uh, you could always point your finger at somebody who wasn't doing things exactly right. Now, in fairness, we need to say the reason they had so many rules uh, was because they really wanted to do things right. We want to love God. We want to love people. But what does that look like exactly? And so this led to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of specific laws with minute details. And the law is very important, right? Jesus said himself at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law is important. The law is there for a reason. But I think we can summarize uh, Jesus' teaching about the law and the teaching of the New Testament writers this way. Judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. Uh, you know, we also live in a time of great judgment and legality. In fact, we live in a time and place where people invite us to judge. You know, we have companies like Amazon and Uber and TripAdvisor and Yelp that invite us to make judgments. TripAdvisor is interesting to me that we want to know about places we've never been from people we've never met. Now, this is customer feedback. This is crowdsourcing. This can be very, very helpful, but it is reforming our instincts to be people who judge all people and all situations. And this is where it gets really dangerous. It, it, it points to the problem that William Barclay spells out. William Barclay says this, we never know the whole facts or the whole person. Isn't that true? We have to be careful in forming judgments when we don't have all the information. It was the great Rabbi Hillel who said these words, Do not judge a man unless you yourself have come into his circumstances or situation. Now, of course, there are lots of things over which we have to make judgments. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says we have to judge the path that we are on. He's going to say in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we have to judge false teachers from true teachers and false discipleship from true discipleship. And we have to judge the kind of foundation we're going to build our lives on. Is it a firm foundation or a shaky foundation? Jesus is not talking about those kinds of judgments. And we certainly have to honor morality. Jesus is not talking about those kind of judgments either. I find this statement by John Stott incredibly helpful. He says, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. We're not blind to injustice or immorality, but we have a generous approach to other people. Generosity extends to how we treat others and how we think about others. We give people the benefit of the doubt. And this is where Jesus invokes his unforgettable metaphor about the plank and the speck. He says, you know, why, why do you get all caught up in the speck, the tiny speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? Uh, Jesus said in the end of this, you hypocrite, he says. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You hypocrite. And what's the main accusation people make of the church today? Hypocrisy. Now, we need to be careful here because sometimes people do lob the accusation of hypocrisy really to, to relieve their own guilt or to get out of doing something they know is right. But if we're honest, sometimes the accusation sticks. If we're honest, we have been guilty of judgment and hypocrisy, and this is what Jesus is warning about. This is what we want to avoid. So we can think of it this way. There are different medical conditions we've heard of. Uh, there's a common eye infection called pink eye, and that's kind of nasty. But there also is a spiritual eye infection that we could call plank eye. 
<laughs> this is what Jesus is talking about, plank eye. It's a very common infection in humanity, and it seems to be especially contagious in religious circles. And here's a medical diagram of what it looks like. And I want to thank the preschooler who provided this, uh, this medically accurate diagram. Uh, it looks kind of painful, doesn't it? Uh, but notice that the guy is smiling, and this is one of the unusual aspects of the plank eye disease, is that it gives us a false sense of pride. And so we almost enjoy having our plank. We're not sure we want it to be removed. Now, uh, in, in the Bible, when Jesus uses this term plank, um, some people say that this could also be translated log or tree. In other words, Jesus may have had something much larger in mind. You know, you got a, you got a plank in your eye and you're all concerned about the speck in your brother's eye. And if I have a plank in my eye, I can't even reach my brother's eye, right? I mean, it looks ridiculous. Have, have you ever had a plank in your eye? Have you ever had a speck in your eye? And if you think you've never had a speck in your eye, you definitely have a plank in your eye. And planks are slow growers. Very rarely does somebody wake up and say, wow, honey, how did this thing get in my eye? Uh, planks grow slowly after long-held attitudes of judgment. They, they tend to grow with time. Now, you would think I would be much more aware of my plank than I am of the speck, but it rarely works that way. In fact, what happens most often is that we fall into the human tendency to blame somebody else for our problem. And maybe during your homestay, you're seeing some of that go on in your own family, in your own house right now, a little blaming going on. Uh, maybe you've even experienced a scene that, that looks something like this. Okay, we're never gonna talk about this, you two. Something happened here on the wall. Who did that? Jackson, did you do that? Um, no, he did that. No, I did not. I really didn't. Okay, well, when I walked in the room, you looked like you were hiding something. A ghost? No, a ghost definitely did not do that. Well, well I was trying to hide it from you because I didn't want Jackson to get in trouble. Are you sure about this? Because I don't know if I believe you. Because we, you have not told the truth in the past. Jackson, did you do that on the wall? No, you did. No, I did not. I really didn't. Did you see him do that? No. How do you think that this happened, Jackson? How do you think this happened? I do it. You did it. Yeah. You did do it. Is that good or bad? Good. Not good. <laughs> but. But. I don't know who to believe. Okay. We're going to have to talk to Daddy about this. Uh, where do kids learn to blame so early in life? Uh, where, where, where did my kids learn to blame so early? And they didn't learn it from me, that's for sure. There's somebody else. Well, they, learned, they learned it from the human condition we see very early on in the human story that blame enters the very first human beings. This is a passage from the book of Genesis. This is God speaking to the first man. God said to Adam, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman. He's going to blame her. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The man blames the woman. The woman blames somebody else. Now question, is this the last marital couple in history who have blamed each other for a problem? It is not. I've heard that some other couples have done this as well. Pastor Andy Stanley says when someone comes to him for marital counseling, a person from a distressed marriage, they always want to talk about what the other person has done. And he says, well, that other person is not here. Clearly the person that deserves all the blame isn't here. So let's put it, think of it this way. Let's say we draw a circle and this circle represents 100% of the responsibility for the chaos and pain that's in your marriage. What percent do you think you are personally responsible for? And usually that person draws something like this. That little slice represents my responsibility. That's me. And the rest of the pie, that's them. And then Andy Stanley in, in the counseling session will say, well, since them isn't here in the room, uh, then let's talk about the only thing we really can talk about, which is the part that you have responsibility for. Let's focus on that. And ironically, most people cannot do that. Most people cannot talk about their slice. They keep coming back to them, them, them. Uh, they can't focus on this way. You might call this the pie of responsibility, and you can use this in a marriage. You can use this in your parenting. You can use it in a workplace. And what we find is when you focus on the part that you have control over, you will grow. And when you focus on the part that's out of your control, the only thing that will grow is your bitterness and negativity. Blame is not good. Blame undermines workplaces. Blame causes pain. Uh, blame uh, violates love. But I can do this so naturally. I can rationalize it so easily. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore injustice. It doesn't mean you've got to pretend you're not a victim of abuse or of power or uh, of, a, of a disease that you have no control over. We have to acknowledge those things as true. What this means is that I, I, I join my, my little kingdom with all of its limitations. I join it into God's greater kingdom and his desire to change everything. Blame is not just an individual problem. Uh, blame is something that's, that can be cultural. All groups, all societies, all cultures have something called scapegoating. Scapegoating is that practice of blaming a person or a group for the problem, even if it's not true. It's a way to alleviate our own sense of responsibility. One kid in middle school gets picked out to get picked on. Not because they're the most unattractive or the most awkward. Sometimes there's no reason at all, but everyone seems to know that is the scapegoat and it relieves us from responsibility. Families can have scapegoats. There can be a kid that gets kind of labeled the black sheep or everyone can blame mom and dad and relieve themselves of any kind of responsibility in the family. Families can do this. Nations can do this. In, in America, sometimes people blame the rich. It's that 1% that of the wealthiest people. They're to blame for the problems in our society. 99% of us, we're off the hook. It's the 1%. Or people can blame the 
the poor. The problem is people who don't work or who drain government resources. The problem is the old. The problem is the young. The, the problem is somebody who's not me. That's the bottom line. National scapegoating can take extreme forms, and some scholars have written about this. A recent scholar said that for Hitler, the scapegoat was above all Jewish people. For Stalin, it was the dissidents. For Rwanda, it was the Tutsi. Scapegoating people means dehumanizing them. The idea of scapegoating and the term scapegoat itself actually comes from the Bible and refers to the ancient sacrificial system. In a deeply symbolic act, the priest on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur would transfer the sin from the people after their confession and repentance onto a goat that was chosen for that purpose. And then the goat was released into the wilderness as a symbol of the sin of Israel being taken away. And there are stories of scapegoating throughout the Bible, but a remarkable thing happens. These stories begin to get told in ways that are sympathetic to the victim, sympathetic to the scapegoat. God cares about the victims of injustice. God uh, stops blaming. He, he wants the human race to get over this. And all this comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ who was the holy and perfect one. And then we read these fantastic words in 1 Peter. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And these great words. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is someone else who can handle the justice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In, in God's great mercy, Jesus takes all the hatred, all the violence, all the injustice onto himself on the cross, and he becomes the great scapegoat. He becomes the ultimate scapegoat, the final scapegoat. He takes all of that sin and blame onto himself so that you and I can be forgiven. Friends, this is the gospel. And here's the kingdom connection I want you to think about in the week ahead, how to apply this text. This week, I invite you to say, I'm going to focus on the plank that's in my eye and not on the speck in somebody else's eye. The plank, a spirit of condemnation, could be based on somebody else's morality or their behavior that drives you crazy or their political ideology it might be generational, it might be economic, and I want you to pull out your plank if you have one. This, this is a, a piece of bark, but you might pull out um, a piece of lumber or a popsicle stick or even a piece of paper to represent that plank. And I want you to put the plank in your house somewhere where you will see it often. And every time you see it, you pray, God, by your spirit, help me to identify and remove the plank that's in my eye because I know that I have one and I need your help to be able to identify it and remove it. Help me to focus not on other people's uh, problems, but take responsibility for my things, that I will own those things. Now, if you already know what your plank is, because some of you do, and if you're brave enough, I encourage you to write that with a magic marker or a pen right on your plank and let that be a symbol and a, and a prayer prompt for you in the week ahead.
I will take responsibility. Yes, those are my words. Those are my actions. That's what's true. I will not avoid it. These are a couple uh, questions that you, your groups can use this week in your families or as individuals for reflection. When someone you know starts to complain about someone else you know, how do you react inside? Just kind of reflect on that for a while. And what is the plank that's in your own eye? And additional questions can be found in the small group section of your app. These are great questions to ask yourself because everybody has a plank. It might be an attitude, it might be behaviors, you might be aware, unaware what it is, but you have one. I know you have one because that is the human condition. And the psalmist puts it this way, but who can discern their own errors? It's something you probably can't see today. Forgive my hidden faults. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit, if you ask him, will come in and help you identify, help you discern, help you remove that plank and help you live more fully in the kingdom of God. Will you bow and pray with me now? I invite you to pray now, wherever you are, a dangerous prayer. And the prayer is, change me, God. This is not a time to pray, change my spouse, change my boss, change my circumstance. I want you to pray where you are in silence. God, you change me, change my attitude, change my pattern of negative thinking. Change my sarcasm with my spouse. Change the way I nag my children. Change my envy. Change my defensive spirit. Change my stubbornness. We pray, God, God, give to me discernment, wisdom, strength, and peace. And God, may your resurrection power raise me to new life. And through me, to all that I encounter this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.